The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 75, to the chief musician, set to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly, Selah. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Praise God for that. Brian Fagan, good to see you. All right, we are in Joshua 19, 24 through 31. I'm sure somebody's going to remember this. This is the inheritance of Asher. Does anybody remember what the name Asher means? Happy. Happy and also blessed. All right. Verse 24. The fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families. And their territory included Helkat, Hali, Beten, Achshaf, Alamelech, Ahmad, and Mishal. It reached to Mount Carmel westward along the brook Shehor Livnat. It turned toward the sunrise to Beth Dagon, and it reached to Zebulun and to the valley of Jephthah-el. Then northward beyond Bethamech and Neiel, bypassing Kabul, which was on the left, including Evron, Rehov, Hamon, and Cana, as far as Greater Sidon. All, and the border turned to Ramah and to the fortified city of Tyre. Then the border turned to Hosa and ended at the sea by the region of Achziv. Also, Uma, Afek, and Rehov were included. 22 cities with their villages. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families, these cities with their villages. It's always exciting for me to have those little events in life crop up that seem coincidental, but which never are. Quite often, Jim will open the church and he'll talk about something that will, without advanced planning, be exactly what is referred to in the sermon. That happened twice last week. At times, one of the psalms that is read in the church will be referred to in the sermon. That is never planned because the sermons are typed well in advance, and I never really know what psalm will be read on Sunday morning, simply because we skip one once in a while, or we forget to read one, or whatever. And yet, the exact psalm that is there to open the service will read right into the content of the sermon. Similarly, there are many times when I will be doing my morning Bible reading, and I find myself reading exactly what I needed for sermon typing that Monday. That happened on the day I typed this sermon. I read the first few chapters of Micah that morning, and then I got started. 
about six hours into the sermon typing, I realized that both passages use the name Achsiv. The name is found in Joshua 19:29 and in Micah 1, verse 14. Considering that the name is only found four times in the Bible, that was a fun surprise for me. Little God winks like that always make me glad I read the Bible every day. So how many chapters of the Bible did you read this morning? That's my question for you. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 2. It is verse 12. Kiss the chosen one, lest he be angry, and ye lose the way. When his anger burneth but a little, oh, the happiness of all trusting in him. That is from Young's literal translation of the Bible. The word esher, or happiness, comes from ashar, blessed or happy. This is the word used by Leah when Asher was born. What is it that brings happiness? What is it that will bring eternal happiness? Unfortunately, too many in the church wrongly equate the two kinds of happiness. This makes me happy, and so this will be what God will provide for eternal happiness. With this kind of thinking, every possible perversion one can name has crept into the church. If you don't believe me, go check some of the churches in Sarasota and the things they teach. We take our corrupt view on happiness, such as sexual sin, decide that God accepts this, and then anticipate that for all of eternity we will be able to indulge in sexual sin. If you think this is crazy, just look at what is taught in almost every mainstream church on the planet. This isn't happiness. It is moral corruption and wickedness. It will not lead to eternal bliss. For those poor, deluded fools, it will bring eternal condemnation as God's wrath is poured out on them. What makes me happy? One thing is driving to the church for Bible study or Sunday gathering, and the very passage that is playing on the audio Bible as I drive is a part of what is in the material to be presented in the next couple of hours. Man, I get the biggest kick out of that. Puppies make me happy too. There are some contrasts set forth for us in today's passage. First, we will evaluate the content for what it all means, and then we will see how it all fits in typologically with something we all experience in our lives in Christ. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is the fifth lot. It's verses 24 through 31. The narrative continues as it details the final seven tribal land inheritances that have been assigned according to the lot. The first was to Benjamin. The second was to Simeon. The third went to Zebulun. The fourth went to Issachar. The fifth is now designated and detailed for the tribe of Asher. Verse 24, the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher according to their families. Asher was Jacob's eighth son and the second son of Leah's maidservant Zilpah. The lot drawn for him comes after Zebulun and Issachar, despite them being born later. This is because the sons of the maidservants are detailed after those of Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. The record of his birth is found in Genesis chapter 30. It says there, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, 
for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. In her exclamation, Leah makes a pun on the noun Osher, happiness, and the verb Ashar, blessed, saying, Be'ashari ki ishruni banot. I am in happiness, for will call me blessed daughters. As such, the name means happy, but it also means blessed. On the march from Sinai to Canaan, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali were stationed north of the tabernacle under the standard of Dan. In the order of marching, this was the final standard to break camp and to move. It is interesting that the youngest son of each handmaid, Asher and Naphtali, are paired next to each other in the most northern area of Canaan in their tribal land grants. Asher will be the most northwestern area of the land along the Mediterranean Sea. Cambridge describes it saying the following, The general position of the tribe was on the slope of the Galilean mountains from Carmel northwards with Manasseh on the south, Zebulun and Issachar on the southeast, and Naphtali on the northeast, a narrow but beautiful and fertile region. With that, the description begins by stating, verse 25, And their territory included Helkat, Hali, Beten, Achshaf. As is usual, the New King James Version destroys the earlier correct translation of the King James Version when such lists are made. They leave out all of the necessary conjunctions between each name. Vehi gevulam, chelkat vehali vaveten veachshaf, and was their border helkat, and hali, and beten, and achshaf. What is described begins with the central part of the territory. It goes to the south in verses 26 and 27, and then to the north in verses 28 and 30. Chelkat comes from the verb chalak, to divide or share, or from the noun chelka, a parcel or portion. Hence, it variously is translated as division, portion, field, or possession. Strong's, however, takes a figurative meaning of the word chelka, and calls it smoothness. This is derived from the description of Jacob's skin, as was seen in Genesis 27. There it said, Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part, the chelka of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of her son Jacob. Using this figurative sense, the word is also used to describe the smooth tongue. Thus, a figurative meaning could be flattery. Chali comes from chali, an ornament or a jewel. That, however, comes from chala, which signifies to be rubbed or worn, as when a jewel is polished. Figuratively, that word means weak or sick, as well as to stroke, as in flattery. A second root is halal, to pierce. Thus, it is translated as jewel, ornament, polished, pierced thing, and pierced, or other words like that. Beten comes from beten, the belly, or the womb. Thus, it literally means belly or womb. However, the NAS concordance looks at it as depression, taking it as a depression in the terrain that looks like a belly. Think of a woman lying down, okay? Asaf was seen in chapter 11. It is possibly from chashaf, meaning to practice sorcery. Hence, it signifies fascination or bewitched. Next, verse 26, Alamalech, Ahmad, and Mishal. Alamalech comes from Allah, an oak, or from Allah, an oath. The second half 
is from Melech, king. Thus it is Oak of the King or Oath of the King. Ahmad is said by Strong's to come from Am, people, and Ad, time, meaning perpetuity or eternal. Thus it is people of time. Mishal is from Sha'al, to ask or inquire. Strong's defines it as request. Verse 26 continues, it reached to Mount Carmel westward along the brook Shehor Livnat. Ufaga be Carmel Hayama ube Shihor Livnat and impinged in Carmel the westward or seaward as in Jeremiah 46:18 because west and sea are the same word in Hebrew and in Shihor Livnat. Carmel means plantation, orchard, or fruitful field, meaning plentiful place. Clark calls it vineyard of God. Shichor Livnat comes from two words obviously intended to avoid any hint of racism, or not, Shachar to be black and Laven to be white. Having said that, the noun Shachar means dawn and the verb Shachar means to seek early or diligently. Thus, the meaning of the city's name could have an amazing number of possibilities, including black-white, that would be the most basic name, dark side of the moon, or lunar eclipse. To throw in another monkey wrench, the thought of Laven, or white, has consistently referred to works since Genesis chapter 11. If you don't remember that, go back and watch every sermon we've done since then, and you'll see it about 800 times. <laughs> this is because Laven also means brick, because bricks whiten when they are fired. Bricks imply human labor, and thus works. Therefore, for typology, the city could be translated as blackened works, early works, or diligently seeking works, and so on. Verse 27, it turned toward the sunrise to Bet Dagon, Veshav Mizrach HaShemesh Bet Dagon, and turned rising the sun, Bet Dagon. Bet means house, Dagon comes from Dag, which is fish, but as much as anything, fish signify abundance. Hence, the word daga means to multiply or increase, and dagan refers to cereal crops in general and thus natural abundance. Therefore, bet dagon can mean house of dagon, which is a Philistine god, meaning the god dagon. It can mean house of fish. It can mean house of increase or house of cultivation of natural abundance. Verse 27 continues, and it reached to Zebulun and to the valley of Jephthah El. Zebulun means glorious dwelling place. We saw that a couple sermons ago. What a great picture that made. The valley Ge comes from Geva, pride, which in turn comes from Ga'a, to rise up high, etc. This means the sides of the valley rise up, forming the valley. And Yiftach comes from he will open. Taken together with El or God, the name means God will open or God opens. Ellicott defines it as God's opening. They all carry the same general meaning. Verse 27 continues, Then northward, beyond Bethemek and Ne'el, bypassing Kabul, which was on the left. The word bypassing is entirely incorrect. Tzafona bet ha'emek uni'el ve'yatsa el chavul mismol. Northward, beth the emek and ne'el and went out unto Kabul from left. As for Beth Emek, Beit means house and Emek means valley, but that comes from Amok, to be deep. Thus it is house of the valley or house of the depth. 
Ne'el means something like moved of God or scattered of God, although some say it is dwelling place of God. Kabul comes from kevel, a fetter. Thus, it signifies a limitation. Therefore, Strong's defines it as sterile. Others define it as good for nothing. The same name, but regarding a different area, is seen in 1 Kings chapter 9. Here's what it says there. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, as they are to this day. Then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. In this passage from 1 Kings, Kyle ties it to the root chevel, which would give the meaning of pawned or pledged. Hence, he concludes that this strip of territory was merely given to Hiram as a security for the repayment of a loan. That would make sense based on the note about the gold. However, this thought would bring us back to the original word, fetter. Hiram may have felt chained to the land based on the money that was sent. Thus, it may simply mean fettered. Verse 28, including Evron, Rehov, Hamon, and Cana, as far as greater Sidon. Evron is from the verb avar, to pass over, or the noun ever, the region beyond. Thus it is beyond, passing, or passage. Strong's defines it as transitional. Rehov means wide space, or open place. Hamon comes from hamam, to be, or to become warm. Thus it is warmed, hot, glowing, or maybe hot spring. Kana comes from kana, which means to get or to acquire. That is from the root of kane, a reed, because a reed is used as a measuring device. Thus it can mean reed, possessed, or possessor. Church historian Jerome says that this is identified as Cana, where Jesus performed his first miracle, because this Cana, rather than another one, was in Asher. It is in the upper Galilee rather than the lower Galilee. Sidon Rabbah, greater Sidon, means great hunting place, or more specifically, great fishery, because it's on the coast, it is a fishery. Verse 29, and the border turned to Ramah, and to the fortified city of Tyre. Veshav ha-gevul ha-Ramah, ve-ad-er mibsar tsor, and turned the border, the Ramah, and until city fortified, tsor. This is probably not speaking of Tyre at all. It is generally agreed that it wasn't until later that Tyre became a noted location. Rather, this could be a fortified city known as Tsor, the same name later given to what we today translate as Tyre. The Ramah means the height or the lofty place. Tsor, Tyre, comes from Tsor, a flint, or Tsor, a rock. Thus it is the fortified city Tsor. Verse 29 continues, Then the border turned to Hosa and ended at the sea by the region of Achsiv. Veshav ha-gevul Hosa ve-yiyu totsotav ha-yama mechevel Achsivah and turned the border Hosa and were outgoings the sea from Kord Achsiv. The meaning of Kord is that which is marked off and thus an area or a region. If you understand that, a cord is something you use. You take it out like a measuring device, and you say, okay, it's this long, and you mark around it. So it gives you an area or a region. Chosa comes from chasa, to seek refuge. Thus it means seeking refuge or simply refuge. 
Strong's goes with the intent of what the act of seeking refuge is, and he translates it as hopeful. Achsiv comes from achsav, deceptive or disappointing. That comes from kazav, to be a liar. Thus, it literally means lying or liar, but the intent is probably deceptive or disappointing. Micah will use the name in a wordplay that he makes on the names of the cities in Israel. There he says, the houses of Achziv to lie, le Achsav, to the kings of Israel. The idea is that what appears useful turns out to be completely disappointing. Little life application for you there. If you live in a big house and you've got a gate around it and you think life is secure, it's not. That's the point that he's making there. People are trusting in the wrong thing in life. Verse 30, also Uma, Afek, and Rehov were included. It would be nice if they just translated it as it is given. Ve Uma, Va'afek, Ul, Rehov, and Uma, and Afek, and Rehov. Uma comes from Uma, a word signifying close against, beside, next to, corresponding to, and so on. That comes from the word im, meaning with. Thus it means association or union. Afek comes from afak, meaning to contain, refrain, or be strong. Hence, it is fortress. As before, rechov means wide space or open place. Verse 30 continues, 22 cities with their villages. The number obviously doesn't match the named cities, but there are, as always, various explanations for this. There may be joint border cities, names used as references of where the border goes to. Some cities may be co-located and thus be one city with a joint name and so forth. What is of note isn't that at all, but the meaning of the number itself. Here's what Bollinger says, 22. Being the double of 11 has the significance of that number in an intensified form. Disorganization and disintegration, especially in connection with the word of God. For the number two is associated with the second person of the Godhead, the living word. It is associated with the worst of Israel's kings, Jeroboam and Ahab, each reigning 22 years. 11, we have seen, derives its significance by being an addition to divine order 10 and a subtraction from divine rule 12. These are two of the three ways which the written word of God can be corrupted, the third being alteration. The words of the Lord are pure words, words pertaining to this world and therefore requiring to be purified. But these words have been altered, taken from, and added to by man. Is there anything in this which connects it with the fact that the letters of the alphabet, the Hebrew Aleph Bet, are 22 in number? Does it point to the fact that the revelation of God in being committed to human language and to man's keeping would thereby be subject to disintegration and corruption? That's his question. We answered that all the way back in Exodus when we went through the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was completely covered in Zahav Tahor, gold pure. And yet, the two staffs did not say that. They were simply covered in gold. What were the two staffs representing? Two the two testaments of the Word of God. 
God has allowed man to hold on to the Testaments, to transmit them, and thus there is disintegration and corruption. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the Word of God. We can determine the Word based on the various source texts that God has saved, okay? In the New Testament Greek, we go through a completely different way of identifying corruption in the text, but it can be done. Therefore, we have a sure word. But when somebody claims this is the only Bible that is to be used, you can be sure that it's not the only Bible to be used. There is corruption and disintegration and alteration. If you read the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they purposefully manipulate it. So be careful what you believe. Verse 31 finishes with, This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families, these cities with their villages. Zot nachalat mate bene asher le mishpotam he arim vechatrehen. This inheritance tribe Asher to their families, their cities, and their villages. With this, the cities of Asher, along with some of its borders, have been defined. What is the Lord telling us with all of these names? Happy are those who walk in the light of the Lord, who are content to follow him all their days. Happy are those who cherish his word, learning it and applying it to all of their ways. Happy are those who do not stand in the path of sinners, nor those who sit in the seat of the scornful. Such as these are life's true winners. Such as are not will be eternally mournful. Follow the Lord and delight in his law always. Meditate on his word with all of your mind. You will stand in his presence for eternal days. This temporary fallen world will be forever left behind. Our second thought today is the typology explained. As was seen, there are said to be 22 cities within Asher. Even though that comes at the end of the verses, it provides the tone for the seemingly confused state of names contained within them. Bullinger noted that 22, being the double of 11, has the significance of that number in an intensified form disorganization, and disintegration, especially in connection with the Word of God. It is also associated with the second person of the Godhead, the living Word, Jesus. Concerning the Word, through our actions and conduct, including teaching and instruction, we can add to the Word. That's legalism. If you want that, just go down to the Baptist church down the road. Or we can detract from the word. That is license. Go to any mainstream church in the country, and they are taking away from the word. That is license. We can do this because God doesn't mind. We can also alter the word. That is corruption. Go to the Jehovah's Witnesses and read their translation of the Bible, and you'll have that. Each of these cause disorganization and disintegration of the word. This is immediately seen in verse 25 with the naming of the cities. Chelkat comes from a root meaning to divide or share, or one signifying a parcel or a portion. They both give the sense of division. Chali comes from a root signifying rubbed or worn. Strong's notes that it includes the thought of stroking, as in flattery. Beten was then defined as belly or womb, and Achsaf as fascination or bewitched. Each of these is a part of how Paul describes what is going on in the church, such as Romans 16. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, think of Peten, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. 
And then from Philippians 3, For many walk, of whom I told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And then from Galatians 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Think of legalism, adding in to the Word of God. Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, the next names come in verse 26. They provide a contrast to those things. Alamelech, oath of the king, are those who trust the word of God, accepting his word as an unbreakable oath. Ahmad, people of time, meaning eternity, is an obvious explanation of their eternal state in Christ. Mishal, or request, is the manner in which they live, letting their requests be made known to God, according to Philippians 4 instead of fretting away their lives in anxiety. Carmel, fruitful field, or as Clark defined it, vineyard of God, is explained by Paul saying, you are God's field. That's 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9. Shehor live not, as I typologically translated it, as diligently seeking works, is exactingly explained by Paul in 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Is everybody seeing the contrast between them? In these names of verses 25 and 26, there is seen this contrast two opposing sides within the church, warring against one another. As such, we should take the next locations in verse 27 as describing not one hope, but one of two hopes. The turn is toward the sunrise, to Beit Dagon. Toward the sunrise would indicate toward the rising light of Christ. We've seen that many times in the sermons of the past. One thing you want to remember before I go on so you know that I always try to say this to you, is you want to always be consistent when you translate something. If it says towards the sunrise and it means something in Exodus 25, and it says it in Joshua, whatever chapter we're in, 19, you need to be consistent. If not, you're making things up. You do not make up things concerning the Word of God. You must be consistent. If something says this is a sign, it must be a sign every single time. Be consistent. Don't make things up about the Word of God. We'll go on. Toward the sunrise, it indicates toward the rising light of Christ. Betagon is the house of increase. One hope is increase in this life. The other is hope in the next. Each is a hope based on what one expects God to provide and how he will provide it. That takes us back to Paul's words about those who set their minds on earthly things as opposed to spiritual things. He says in Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, 
those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The border reaches to Zebulun, glorious dwelling place. Though the heavenly anticipation is the hope of release from the cares of this world, the spiritually minded want release from the perversion of it, whereas the carnally minded want it to be their eternal state, doing the things they do now without ever facing death. You see the contrast? The next named location is Gay Yiftach El, the valley of God opens. The word gay comes from, as I said, geva, pride or exaltation. There are those who are proud that God will open heaven for them. And there are those who exalt God for opening heaven for them. The perspectives result in either pride or humility. It is Jesus through whom God opens heaven for man. He is the dividing marker, and how we perceive ourselves in relation to him is the key difference between salvation and condemnation. Is it by faith in his works, or do we exalt ourselves in who we are and what we have done? From there, the border turned northward, the hidden or darkened direction in Scripture. I explained this last week. I want to do it again so you understand. The north is over there. We're in the northern hemisphere where Jerusalem is, where the tabernacle is. And so when the sun comes up, the north is the hidden, the darker direction. And we see that all through the years. The sun moves northward, okay? The opposite happens in the southern hemisphere. The south would be the darkened direction. But the reference is always from Jerusalem, where God dwells. And so it's the darker direction in scripture. It went beyond Bethemek, the valley of the deep. Using the word amok, the root of emek, there is a contrast in the two following thoughts. Here's what it says in Psalm 92. O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. Amok, a senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. And then from Hosea 9, they are deeply amok corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. So you can see the contrast, the deep thoughts of the Lord or what are deep corruption in the fallen man. The contrast fits those who are in the church. Some are hidden in Christ and some only claim to be so. There are those who are in the valley of the deep considering the things of God, and there are those who are in the valley of the deep living in corruption, iniquity, and sin. The church is comprised of both. Woe to the latter. Ne'el, moved of God, is next named. One will either be moved of God in the things of God, or he will be moved away from God as Cain was. After that came Kabul. The meaning of the name is debated, but based on what was presented from 1 Kings chapter 9 in the interaction between Solomon and Hiram, it does appear to be some sort of binding that occurred between the two of them, be it a pledge or a fetter. With that in mind, one is either bound to the Lord through Christ in salvation, or he is so in condemnation. Verse 28 began with Evron, which Strong's translated as transitional. That is the state of all mankind in relation to Jesus Christ while we are in this body. We are either awaiting heaven, or I hate to say it, we are awaiting hell. What we have here is not what will be. Rehov is the wide space. There is either a narrow path to the wide spaces of heaven, or there is a wide path to the narrow confines of hell. The Bible speaks of both. One, the latter, speaks of the earthly-minded. The other, the former, of the heavenly-minded. Hamon comes from hamam, to be warm. 
That is used in Isaiah 57 when referring to allegiances. Here we go. Inflaming, hamam yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys. Think of Planned Parenthood downtown or Planned Murderhood. Under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They are your lot. There are those who are inflamed with the passions of this world, and there are those who are impassioned by the warmth of God towards them in Jesus Christ. The names provide the contrast. That continues with Kana. Though it comes from the word signifying a reed, the reed is used to indicate obtaining or acquiring, and thus possessed. Those in the visible church are either possessed by Christ, or they are not. If not, they will remain possessed by the devil. If you don't believe me, go read 1 John 3, verse 8, okay? The reason why the Son of God was manifest was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus spoke about that very clearly as well. The Bible gives no other options. Some are so deluded, though, that they think they are the Lord's when they are not. We all must evaluate what we truly believe. The next location is Greater Sidon, the great fishery. Everyone is as a fish. When Jesus said to Simon and Andrew that they would be fishers of men, he meant that men are like fish to be caught. That by necessity means that some are caught and some are not. Even within the visible church, there are caught fish and there are those who are not caught fish. Don't be a not, but be a caught. Next is Haramah, the lofty place. It may be stretching this too much, okay? I want to let you know when I'm not sure of an evaluation, and so I say things like that. But it is hard to not at least attempt the connection. This is still the northern border, and we're heading west. A passage in the Psalms and one in Isaiah contrast concerning what seems to be speaking of the lofty place. Here is from 1 Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. That's from Psalm 48, 1 through 3. Contrasting with that is Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. Here it is, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit." Though the passage in Isaiah is widely thought to be referring to Satan, this is not the case. The word translated as Lucifer is Helel, meaning shining one. By using a Latin word and then incorrectly turning it into a pronoun, all kinds of confusion has arisen over this. The passage is speaking of the king of Babylon. He was an unregenerate man who thought way too highly of himself. This is the state of those who place themselves in the lofty place instead of placing the Lord there. So we have another contrast. Are you placing the Lord in the rightful position that he is due or are you placing yourself in the place of the Lord? The next location named was Ur-Mitsar-Tsor, city fortified rock. 
The contrast and explanation is found in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verse 32, where it says, For their rock is not like our rock. There are those who are confident in their rock, the word sur, and yet their rock is not the Lord who is the rock, the tsur. From tsur, the next location is hosa, translated by Strong's as hopeful. But the idea is refuge. When we seek refuge, that is our hope. The contrast is between one who is seeking. For the true believer, it is explained in Hebrews chapter 6. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. For those who are in Christ, there is no need for fear. Their refuge in Christ is set. On the other hand, for those who are not, there is achsiv, deceptive or disappointing. This cannot apply to those who are believers because they have already obtained refuge. On the other hand, the final three names are given to contrast that. Uma or union, speaks of the state of believers in Christ, being united to God through him. Afek, or fortress, is also their state, secured in their salvation because of him. And Rehov, wide space, speaks not of the path they are on, but where their narrow path leads to. This is the explanation of what is going on in the church. The warnings and blessings are laid out in the Gospels and the Epistles, but the typology was given all the way back here in Joshua. Hence, there are 22 cities that contrast, forming a sense of disorganization and disintegration that exists until it is finally and forever corrected by the coming of Christ for his true church. Whether you believe in the rapture or not, the Bible speaks of a rapture. Everybody got that? We saw that in Zebulun. There are people in the church today that will not be taken out at the rapture because they have not trusted in Jesus Christ. That's the point I'm making right there. And unfortunately, the state of corruption exists within his word as well. When man adds to it or subtracts from it, or even, as happens more and more in the world today, alters it. By this time in history, we should have a word that is so grasped by faithful believers that we could have no doubt about its contents. And yet, because of purposeful manipulation of this word, it is becoming more and more splintered, not more cohesive. We must carefully and faithfully hold to its sacred contents. We must warn against faulty evaluations of it, and we must never consider adding to it through legalism or detracting from it through license. Instead, let us hold fast to this cherished word in context and with a proper and right understanding of what it is telling us. And having said that, my evaluation of these many locations must certainly be lacking in some areas. And I apologize for that. I would never intentionally give you a misanalysis of scripture. I have done my best to present to you what I believe we are being told here. But that doesn't mean I have gotten all of the details right. And so please be certain to study the word yourself, consider what you have heard, and hold on to what is good while letting go of what is in error. The word of God is far too precious to not do this. Handle this treasure carefully and meditate on it always. This is your guide to right living and proper glorification of the Lord who created you. He sent his son to redeem you and then gave his word to instruct you. Please hold fast to this word 
In doing this, your life and your eternal destiny will certainly be happy and blessed. Kind of lost for words there because I'm so disheartened in my, my thoughts about the contents of this. You know I'm not one to preach on hell. It's not something that I like doing. It's not something that uh, gets me going. I love to preach on the grace of Jesus Christ. I love to tell people about what he has done for us. But when you come to a passage like this, and like I said, when I evaluate these things, I usually have no idea what's coming. After I do the evaluation of all of the names and all of the locations and all of the directions, I sit down and I have to consider typology. And so far, we've gone through what? Like eight different inheritances, and all eight have presented a different picture. Okay? This one disturbed me, and it continues to disturb me because people are deluded in this world. I've got friends that attend the Jehovah's Witnesses. I know what they believe, and it disturbs me. I've got friends that still attend the Methodist Church, which is preaching every possible perversion that you can name on this planet. I've got head shaking because half of a church showed up in my Bible study one day, and some of them just won't go away. They keep showing up at church here. So I understand that there are people that are deluded by the things of this world and don't hold to this word as sacred and as true, and it makes it difficult for me to preach on things like this. I come to these things, I'm almost unable to, to speak them, but I have to because it's that important that we hold fast to the Word of God and not get distracted by what people are saying or what they're doing in other churches if it doesn't conform to this Word. As I said, this Word cannot be amended. It is God's Word, but people will abuse it, and they will amend it in their own translations, and they are the ones that are going to suffer for that. And people have their own, you know, books of discipline and all these things that they have. And they can change that anytime they want. Well, we don't, uh, you know, ordain homosexuals. And then they have a annual conference and they have 51 votes this year. And so they start ordaining homosexuals. And the Bible doesn't allow that. And so we have to be careful to hold fast to our doctrine, despite what the rest of the world thinks. It's that important. So please... Hold fast to the word, but above all, as I say each week before we go to our closing verse, if you've never called on Jesus Christ, do it today, okay? He is the one that God sent to redeem the world from sin. He sent him with a very simple message for us to believe. Christ died for our sins. Jim did such a great job reading Hebrews 10 today. It clearly defines what is going on in regard to that. He is our atoning sacrifice, if God is fickle, he will provide a second avenue to himself. God is not fickle. There is one path, and Jesus said that in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Please believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died for your sins, and believe that he rose again, and you will be saved. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 1. It is verse 1. This is Young's literal translation. Oh, the happiness of that one who hath not walked in the counsel of the wicked and in the way of sinners hath not stood and in the seat of scorners hath not sat. Happiness. That's what the Lord wants for you if you are willing to put him first. We think the things of this world are happy and when we get to the end of our life, we find out not so much. We almost lost a couple that were driving to church today. That could have been the last day of their life, Right? I mean, it's scary. Somebody was driving down the wrong side of the highway this morning. It was that close. Yeah. 
Okay, you don't know when your last day is going to be. And I'm glad they're here instead of have. I remember the day Kelly Carlin died. I grew up with her. I went to school with her, and she faithfully attended this church every week. She never missed a sermon. On the beach, we moved into here. She never missed a sermon except to go when her daughter twice a year marched in the Sarasota military parade. And she would miss church for that. Shame on her. And one day, I got a call that Kelly had died. She was standing in front of her mirror, combing her hair. She had a brain hemorrhage, and she was dead before she hit the floor. We don't know when her last day is coming. We have no idea, and it's that important. Disintegration, corruption, all of it. The Lord is trying to wake us up now while we have a chance. The good thing about Kelly Carlin's death is I get to see her again someday. Praise God for that. Our closing verse, I read that. Next week is Joshua 19. It's verses 32 through 39. Great things for us to see. It's entitled, The Inheritance of Naphtali. That'll be our 42nd Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he has a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and now who offers his people rest. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I've got a very short poem for you, but before I give it, Please, oh, no, you know what? I don't think you're going to have to raise your hand today. Just call it out. But before I read you this question, I want you to be careful. It's not a trick question, but a lot of people are going to get this wrong. What is the name of David's first wife? Michael. What? Michael. Okay, that's correct. Did anybody else say Michael? Michal, did you too? Did you say that? Well, you raised your hand. Did you say Michael? Okay, we got two of them. I got two winners. All right, that's good because I've been trying to get rid of two of these for a week. Um, I'm going to let Jody pick which one she wants. She can either have skunk a la king or cream possum. You take which one you want and give the other to Burke. Okay? All right, I've been waiting to get rid of those. Okay. That was very good because, you know what, I'm going to admit I would have gotten that one wrong. I would have said Abigail. I would have said Abigail. I just would, you know, you're thinking because she's such a pivotal person in Scripture that you think Abigail, but Michal, Saul's daughter, actually should have been Merav if you remember that, and that didn't work out, so he gave her Michal, all right? But I would have been thinking Abigail. So all these names that got called out, and I'm glad only two did because I didn't think anybody was going to get that. So anyway, good job, guys. Very good. Um, here we go. The inheritance of Asher, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. The fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families, one and all. And their territory included Helkat, Hali, Beten, Ashaf, Alamelech, Ahmad, and Mishal. It reached to Mount Carmel westward along the brook Shehor Livnat. It turned toward the sunrise to Beit Dagon as well. And it reached to Zebulun and to the valley of Yiftach El, then northward beyond Bethemek and Neiel. Bypassing Kabul, which was on the left, including Evron, Rehov, Hamon, and Kana, as far as Greater Sidon. And the border turned to Ramah and to the fortified city of Tyre. Then the border turned to Hosea and ended at the sea by the region of Achsiv, which was well known. Also, Uma, Afek, and Rehov were included, 22 cities with their villages too, this was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Asher. According to their families, these cities, with their villages, 
These they did accrue. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that from time to time we have to be reminded of the consequences of our not choosing Jesus. Lord, I love to preach on the grace found in your word. I love to tell people about the goodness of God the goodness of you in our Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord God, we do have to tell people about the consequences of rejecting that. So help us to be faithful stewards with our time and to tell people the good news and to pray for them after we've given them that good news so that hopefully they will be convicted and to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Lord, the time is short both in our lives and probably in the world before your coming. So help us to be about our business and to glorify you through speaking to others about the goodness of Jesus. We pray this in his beautiful name. Amen. Okay, we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper. It comes right out of the Bible. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's something that we observe from week to week. Um, remembering the Lord's death until he comes, as we'll hear in a minute. But quite often I fail to tell you that there are two ordinances that the Lord established, not just one. Because we don't, this is not an evangelistic church. We don't go out really and, and uh, you know, try to get converts as much as we do to get people to learn doctrine, to learn the word, and to understand what God is telling us after we're saved. Our evangelism always happens in the projects on Saturday and with you when you hand out tracts to people when you go to a restaurant or something. But the second ordinance is baptism. And that was something commanded by the Lord after his resurrection. It's found in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. And he says, go and, you know, preach to the whole world. And he says, make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, he's commanded us to do that. And so if you've never been baptized, it would be a good thing for you to do. The water's getting warm now. You know, the uh, salt water helps uh, spunk you up. You get all the nutrients and the minerals from it when you're swimming. So um, if you haven't been baptized, it's something you should do. And all that is, is a picture of what happened to you when you received the Lord Jesus. It's, uh, you know, I believe in Christ. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he went into the grave, and I believe that he rose again. And he's asked us to make this public proclamation as a picture of what he has done. So when we baptize somebody, we say, buried with the Lord through his death, raised with, in the power of the Holy Spirit through the resurrection. And it's a very short process, but it's something we should do. And it's not something that you do when uh, a baby is born. That's infant baptism, and the Bible never teaches that. Now, this morning, I'm typing uh, Acts 16, and uh, what did they do at the house of um, uh, the jailer and his household when they believed? It's the first thing they did is, even before Paul had his wounds tended to, he took them and he told them the gospel, and then they went and washed his wounds, him and Silas, and then he immediately baptized them, okay? And every single conversion you find in the book of Acts, Acts is descriptive, it doesn't prescribe anything, but it does have normative teachings. In other words, if you see something happen every single time throughout the book of Acts, that is a normative account. 
and it's normative to be baptized after you believe in Jesus Christ. So I'm t- not only talking to people here in the church because I baptized many of you or you were baptized at some point in your life, but to the people online as well. If you haven't been baptized, there's no restriction on who does it. The Bible doesn't say it has to be an ordained pastor or it has to be, you know, this. It doesn't give any restriction, which means you have full license to be baptized by another believer. Whoever want you want them to do it, have them do it, okay? If the Bible demanded that a minister or a elder or something was to baptize you, it would say that, and it does not. So just go out and make that public proclamation, and then when you come in, make sure that you observe the Lord's Supper, because this is remembering the Lord's death until he comes. Both of them, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are a remembrance of what he has done for us. So please consider that.